From Luminary Media and Built-It Productions, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, former Secretary of Health and Human Services, Sylvia Matthews-Burwell. There were a number of things came through the door in the first three weeks. I turned to Bill Corr, who was my deputy at that time, and I said, Bill, what's, can you help me understand? Because he had been there. And he said, well, Sylvia, sometimes people say that problems come in threes. I'm afraid with you, they come in 33s. How Sylvia Matthews Burwell learned to navigate crisis after crisis at the highest levels of the nonprofit world, and then as a member of President Obama's administration. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The biggest government agency is not the Department of Defense or the Treasury or even the Agriculture Department. If you consider budgets, it is the Department of Health and Human Services, about a trillion dollars a year, because Medicare and Medicaid account for a huge chunk of government spending. But there's also the Food and Drug Administration, Centers for Disease Control, the National Institutes of Health, and so on. Keeping Americans healthy is expensive. And running an agency this big is probably the second most difficult job in Washington, right after the presidency. And it's the kind of job where crisis tends to be the norm rather than the exception. Over the three years Sylvia Matthews Burwell ran HHS, she had to contend with the Ebola crisis, thousands of unaccompanied minors showing up at the U.S. border, the Zika epidemic, not to mention dozens of attempts by congressional Republicans to damage and even undermine the Affordable Care Act. When President Obama appointed Sylvia as head of the department in 2014, it was just after the bungled launch of Obamacare. HHS was under intense pressure and congressional scrutiny. In the next three years, we're going to test every single lesson she'd learned as a leader, including the most important one. Planning and preparation are key, but always be prepared for that planning to fall apart, which is actually what happened one night to Sylvia during a Washington Nationals baseball game. She was invited to throw out the ceremonial first pitch. And for six weeks, she practiced that pitch, going to baseball fields all over Washington with her husband early in the morning, just to make sure she'd get the ball over the plate. And that night, when she got ready to throw out the pitch, happened to be HHS night at Nationals Park. Thousands of her staffers were in attendance. And I happened to be there as well. Oh, did you see my disastrous pitch? You were there for that, huh? It was, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's all right. I mean, you know, it's, it's like... You know, it's actually a very interesting example uh, around the issues of leadership because I practiced Guy for many weeks, like six, <laughs> seven weeks. I can tell you every baseball diamond that is public and open at 6 a.m. in Washington, D.C. And instead of date nights, Stephen and I would go for practice nights. He would be my catcher. You'd play catch. We would play catch for date nights. Wow. And so practice, got it down. I even practiced on Wrigley Field at West Point. Wow. Because uh, I was traveling there and I'd practiced, as I said, for about two months. And our neighbor had played uh, college ball and his three sons were pitchers. And so he taught me and... Um, But that night, I go there and I warm up 
and I warm up under you warm up under the uh, yeah. the field in the bullpen. Yep, under yeah, it's underneath and so underneath the field. Okay, this is at this is at Nationals Park. It, this is at Nationals Park, right. and I'm warming up. You're gonna throw the first pitch. Yes, and Stephen's like, "Wow, I'm really feeling it in the glove now." Yeah, and I'm like, "Okay, okay," and then it was one of the hottest days. I don't know if you remember since you all were there. It was really really hot. Yeah, they handed me a ball. I get up there, and you know I'd been putting it across the plate just minutes before. Yeah, and what I learned is the reason that pitchers put the ball in the dirt, and it was a brand new ball that they gave me to pitch, and so I wind up, I go, and the pitch slips, the ball slips out of my hand because your hand is sweating, and because I didn't get it dirty. Yeah. And so it just slips out of my hand. So the good news is that my form in pictures looks quite good. The bad news is I got off the field and my son said to me, Mom, that's the worst pitch I've ever seen. As did about 5,000 HHS employees. But I used it in my next HHS letter that I sent out to the team Mm -hmm. as as an example of we all fail. And we all fail even when we try really hard. And the question is, is what you do with it. Yeah. You did all the right things. That's right. And it didn't work out. (laughs) Um, Let me first ask you about um, where you grew up. Because you grew up in uh, Hinton, West Virginia, I guess. where, Where is that, by the way? Hinton, West Virginia is in the southern part of the state of West Virginia. Uh, it's about four and a half hours drive from Washington, D.C., five and a half if you have kids that are nine and 11. <laughs> and it is on three rivers and a lake. It's a very small town in a beautiful part of the world. What, what, did, your, uh, what did your parents do when you were a kid? When I was a kid, my father was an optometrist and my mother was a teacher. And my mother actually taught in everything from a one-room school to a college, a college that is now a university. Hmm. Is the West Virginia that you grew up in, was that a different West Virginia than the West Virginia of today? I think that there are some changes that have occurred that the economic difficulties have become greater that uh, the issues of the opioid crisis are very real in the part of the state that I come from. But in terms of how it can shape and contribute to the sense of community, I think that still very much exists. And the idea of hard work, the idea of taking care of each other, knowing your neighbor, there are a number of things that I think still exist there. But there are some challenges that have gotten harder. How much does West Virginia shape who you are today? It shapes me, I think, a lot. I would say it is uh, one of the seminal shaping features of my life. And it's both the place, the community, uh, and my family that I think have so much impact on everything from my intellectual curiosity to how I think about service and how I think about those things. Yeah. I, I have to say one one quick thing, which is there, there really is a, in our country, um, a lack of awareness about service. Um, and it's it just, I mean, you made that conscious choice and make that conscious choice, right? I mean, you, it's, it's, it's I, I think it's something that a lot of people in the United States don't understand how many people just are not interested in becoming rich and, uh, because they're really focused on, you know, doing work that has that serves the public in a in a in a bigger way. I think that there are two things uh, for me that contributed a lot to that, and one is my family and my parents and what I saw in my parents. I mean, my mom and dad wouldn't let us go trick-or-treating for Halloween until we went trick-or-treating for UNICEF first. Wow. So from the hours of four to six, <laughs> we would take the little box and we would go to all the neighborhoods and we would trick-or-treat for UNICEF Wow. and collect money for UNICEF. Then you'd go back from six to eight and get your candy. You know, a part of it is related to our faith. That is a part of, you know, what you learn in your faith, this important uh, importance of service. And I think all of those things are the things that contribute to 
uh, for me, why you know there's such a strong sense of service. Hmm. But many people don't appreciate um, what government service is or what it means. Yeah. When you grew up in West Virginia, it was a solidly democratic state, right? It was like the state of of Robert Byrd and 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 Rockefeller, Jay Rockefeller, and John F. Kennedy's famous tour, you know, right through West Virginia, and and so you became a Democrat. You devoted your your sort of public career to serving Democratic leaders. When you go back today, um, does it feel? Like the sort of the partisanship is more pronounced. Do people kind of people have known you give you grief or even just joke about it, or is it does it feel pretty much the same as it did when you were when you were younger? It feels a little uh, different, but I think people are very good about wanting to hear my point of view and respecting the fact that I am from and part of West Virginia and care deeply about the people and the communities there and so are willing to listen to why do I have the points of view that I have? What are the facts that I know Hmm. in terms of those that uh, know me? But I think it does have a different feel because a number of the things don't align necessarily with my points of view. Mm -hmm. In one way, it's also, I think, informing because there is a sense of making sure that those that represent them actually respect them. And I like to say that I think sometimes people in my hometown and other places think that people in Washington on both sides of the aisle um, have a point of view that isn't respectful of the fact that on Sundays – Everybody I know from where I live goes to church, and after church, you have a a meal uh, with your family, sometimes at Kirk's Home with a Hungry Smile, where I had my first job as a waitress, Hmm. or in your house. And then, depending on what's happening, you may watch West Virginia University sports. Right. And I think the, the sense of respect for that as a way of life, the priorities that people have, they sometimes, I think, feel that people have moved away from respecting that. Hmm. I, I know one of the earliest jobs you had in politics was um, right after you got your undergraduate degree um, from Harvard. This was in 1987, um, and you got a job working on Michael Dukakis's uh, presidential campaign. What, what do you remember from that? I mean, were you like a, a super junior aide on, on that campaign? Yes, Yes, and probably we might just want to back up to mm. the first campaign, which was in 1972, and I worked on Jay Rockefeller's. That was the first time I still had my little J button. Wait, 1972? Were you like uh, three years old? I was seven. Seven. <laughs> okay. Um, but probably the even more important one occurs the next round, and you may remember that Jay Rockefeller lost that first race mm-hmm. for governor. But then he comes back. And in the next round, at this point, I'm in elementary school, and we had started a newspaper, the Central News and World Report. We were granted an interview with the candidate, Jay Rockefeller. We were his first visit as he came to our county. And he came to our memorial building, and he was going to do a speech as a candidate. But the first thing he did was he met with me. He met with Christy Gore Scott and Terry Giles, and we had our tape recorder, for those listening to this who may not be familiar, think a huge oversized (laughs) iPhone that could only record. Um, And so we had our little reporter notebooks, and we had our questions, and we asked them and then wrote an article for our newspaper the Central News and World Report. And I do think that that was a turning point for the candidate. I mean, I I think that that may have been the start to what led to the victory um, of that uh, campaign. (laughs) Obviously, I'm joking. But um, so my engagement in these things started actually quite, quite early. When I went to the Dukakis campaign, I took time off from the time that I was studying in England. And I did that with some other friends, one of whom was a very close friend, Susan Rice. Mm. And I got there to the campaign Bo- first. But by the way, both of you were were both of you studying in England? Yes. And so both of you were Rhodes Scholars? Yes. 
Susan and I are both Rhodes Scholars. Susan was the class ahead of me, and wow. Susan was also my basketball coach wow. at Oxford when I was uh, playing for the university as well. But during this, this was a little before the basketball, I got to the campaign first. And when Susan arrived, I suggested that, Susan, on this campaign, you need to be a Rhodes Scholar to facts and a Marshall Scholar to photocopy. So when you asked, were we junior, the answer to that question is yes. <laughs> um, started on the campaign. I worked in for John Podesta. On the campaign. Yes, on yep. the campaign. I worked for John Podesta. And I actually worked on debate preparation. So that meant preparing both the candidate and the person playing the opposition in the debates. Hmm. And so I would do all the fact-checking. Obviously, that did not um, end well for the Dukakis campaign. He was defeated um, in 1988, and you went back, presumably, to finish your degree as a, as a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford. Um, and then I guess you kind of um, went into the into the private sector afterwards. You worked for, for McKinsey. Was, I'm just curious, when you, when you really started your career, was it always your idea that you would enter into public service or did you think, you know, let me see where this McKinsey thing uh, takes me? So I think the answer was a little yes and no, and it gets to a theme that runs throughout my career. And that is, I haven't always been knowing exactly where I'm going. Hmm. And so when pressed to answer a question in my Rhodes interview, uh, Tim Healy, Father Tim Healy, who was the president of Georgetown, asked me as part of my Rhodes interview, what are you going to be doing from 10 years from now? Hmm. What I thought at that moment was, I'll work in the executive office of the president. And so I think that was there. But at the time, I went to McKinsey. I want to try this out. I want to see what it's like to learn about this. I had taken my LSATs right before I started at McKinsey because I thought, you know, I'll probably work at McKinsey for two years, see what it's like, and then go to law school. Yeah. And that's as far as I had gotten. Right. And I never got to law school. You never got to law school. And and obviously, um, you sort of took a detour uh, towards public service, which was 1992, which was an opportunity to join or to be involved with, a, with a Bill Clinton's presidential campaign. How did that happen? Were you kind of recruited into it? So... Um, In 1992, the uh, convention was held in New York City. Mm -hmm. And my my sister and I both lived and worked in New York City. Our parents came up for the convention. It was wonderful. And started to get the bug a little bit. Like, wow, this is is exciting. It's an exciting time. We have a very exciting candidate um, who I believed aligned with so many of the views and things that I believed in and that could be done to support our nation and, and take it to even a better place. And so I thought about it and I thought, well, I'll just make one phone call. And I had talked to Gene Sperling, who I'd worked with in the 88 campaign. And obviously I'd worked with George Stephanopoulos in the 88 campaign. And then Gene called and said, can you come down? And so I went to Little Rock, Arkansas. I took a leave of absence from McKinsey. They were great about letting me do that. And went to Little Rock, Arkansas to work on the campaign and be a part of the war room. And your focus was on, was like on on economics, right? On on sort of- Economic policy. Absolutely. Gene Sperling, myself, and a number of others. That must have been, I mean, such an exciting time because obviously it was a young candidate, um, what do you remember about about working in Little Rock in 1992? I it was a highly energized team, and I learned so much about economic policy. I learned so much about politics. I learned so much about leadership, and I hopefully contributed uh, on those fronts as a team member of a a team that was going 24 seven. Uh, leaders, you know, like James Carvel and Paul Begala. James was a Marine, and uh, James had his own style of leadership. But yes. one thing I that I remember so much, and his ironed jeans uh, <laughs> that James always wore. But one of the things that I remember most that James did was at one point, James 
handed out gold stars. And these are the gold stars for anyone who's old enough to remember when you went to the library in the summer and you read a book mm-hmm. and you got a little star <laughs> on a paper thing. Yeah. And that was how you recorded the books that you'd read for the summer. Yeah. It was like a little sticker. Those little sticker. Yeah. Well, on campaigns, there's not a lot of finances. There aren't a lot of things. But what James did was he created the gold stars. And so every Friday, James would hire out, hand out a gold star to a person to honor their work for the campaign that week. And those gold stars were as big as any kind of bonus you could have given. And it was about being honored for your contributions to the team and your contributions to moving us forward. And so everyone, when you got it, you put it on your uh, badge to get into work. And so we all wore our badges every day. And so those gold stars. And it was an incredible lesson about understanding that recognizing people's work and recognizing their contributions to a team is as motivating and as great as about anything you can do. Hmm. Obviously, Clinton wins the the election, and you, um, I guess, are tapped to to help in the transition to work on on the National Economic Council, um, and eventually you would serve as deputy director of the Office of Management and Budget. Two years in, there's this Republican wave, and all of a sudden you've got this sort of uh, contingent of Republicans who really are not that interested in working with the Clinton administration. Of course, today it's a completely different story, right? Um, the way it works. But, but back then it was it was already sort of the beginnings of this kind of the end of what let's say post-war bipartisanship. Do do you remember having difficulties trying to negotiate with congressional Republicans, or did you always try and figure out how to get to a deal? During that time, I can remember Erskine Bowles once said to me, Sylvia, you attract more bees with honey. Mm -hmm. And that was all part of, you know, Erskine's firm belief that you really need to understand what the other side. And he was the head of the OMB when you were. At at that time, Erskine was the chief of staff and I was a deputy chief of staff. Right. And we needed to negotiate. And at that time, it was Trent Lott, Newt Gingrich, uh, and Dick Army. And Gingrich would have us all over to the dinosaur room. Um, That's what his office was called Mm because he had um, uh, some of the things he kept in the office. And you just had to get through and work it out. And there were many, many late nights. Yes, there was contention. You probably remember there was a government shutdown during that period that was one of the longer ones. But you could work to get things done. And that's what we did. Uh, Just time and time again, you work to get, understand where it is we differ, what are the key objectives of either side, how can you find that deal space. There was a, there's a profile of you that I I read and and John Podesta, who is clearly a mentor, was a mentor of yours, is quoted in this profile, that, and he describes your time in, in the Clinton administration as a time when you became an extremely skilled negotiator. Um, was that a hard-won skill that you learned, or do you think that you had that skill kind of naturally when you got there? I think that's something that one learns. I think it does harken back to some of the things from my time and you asked about my community at home in West Virginia and the ideas of respect and listening to others uh, is an important part. I think one of the skills that kind of I brought from my childhood and many things you had to learn. And the other thing about negotiating is really understanding the substance. It makes a real difference. So you understand where you can go. You can be creative because you have a depth of understanding. I was very fortunate to be able to watch and observe, and very fortunate, I have to say, to even watch and observe those that one was negotiating against, hmm. whether that was Newt Gingrich or, or Trent Lott, and to try and figure out how do you get things to work when you're trying to get deals done. 
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. When, when your time with the administration came to an end, um, did, you, did you think that your sort of time in government was also over, that you would now go into the private sector in some form and embark on an entirely new career path? I, I have never had a planned place, but how I think about the next steps and how I think about what I'm doing is related to a story when I was working at McKinsey. I had gone to a dinner party and met a friend's father at this dinner party, and he had asked would I be willing to consider moving to, I think it was the Bahamas. It was the Bahamas to run uh, part of his construction business. Hmm. You know, I'm very young at this point. And the idea of like, wow, I'll run my own thing. I'll be in the Bahamas. This this sounded pretty good. (laughs) And so I was like, wow, this sounds so good. And I was completely taken with this idea. And I call up a a friend and a mentor, um, Tom Donlan. Who became uh, uh, the deputy? No, he became. He became. He was the national security advisor for President Obama. Yeah. And he had uh, been chief of staff at the State Department and served in a number of different roles in government over time. I had had the chance to work with Tom in the '88 campaign, but I called Tom up, and instead of saying, "Sylvia, that's the silliest and worst idea," um, Tom was great and very gracious, and he said, "Well, Sylvia, here's maybe one way to think about things." When you think about jobs and you think about your career, think about, am I contributing? Am I learning and growing? And am I having fun? (laughs) And if you can put together 40 years of the answer to that question being yes, you've had a good career. And he said, why don't you think about lining this one up against that? It was very good advice, and so I, I, I have tended to think about things in that way and not, am I going to try and be X or try and be Y? And, and so was it because of Tom Donlan's advice? Because after the Clinton administration, you decided to to kind of make a big change. I mean, you moved across the country to Seattle for um, for a pretty big opportunity. Yes, And so at that point in time, I was making a change that I thought was going to be exciting. I was going to go to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I thought this was an incredible opportunity to contribute at scale. I felt I would learn something new. And it was going to be an adventure moving to Seattle. And you ended up staying there for, I think, a decade. You were there for for a long time. Yes. Yes. I arrived in the early days. 
you probably got there pretty soon after they changed it from the Bill Gates Sr. Foundation to the Bill and, and Melinda Gates Foundation. That's right, 2001. And and so you moved, you entirely relocated to Seattle for those 10 years? Yes, yes. I mean, you mentioned this idea that you didn't have a plan and you didn't have a, a very sort of a, you know, this kind of methodical path, right? That you pursued things that seemed interesting and meaningful. Um, and so when you were out of Washington, D.C., when you were out of that arena, um, did it feel like a weight was lifted off your shoulder? Or was there still a part of you that kind of missed missed that action? I have been very fortunate in, as I've gone from one thing to the other, that I am all in. And when people ask me, which of your jobs have you loved the most? So far in life, the answer to that question is the one I'm in. <laughs> um, so how did you, I mean, when President Obama ran in 2008. A lot of your friends were getting involved in that campaign. Susan Rice and people you knew from the Dukakis, probably your days as a Rhodes Scholar and, and working on the Dukakis campaign were getting involved. Um, was there part of you that was kind of thinking, I, maybe I should get involved in this thing? So actually, it was at a point in our lives, my life and my husband Stephen's life and our daughter Helene's life, that that was not the thing that was going to be right for us as a family. Mm. We had um, made a decision, Stephen and I had made a decision that we wanted our second child to be through uh, adoption, that that's how our family would be made complete. And as this campaign was going, we were starting that process. And Mm. so we were quite clear that this would not be the right time for us to make that kind of transition for uh, me to go back and serve in government. Did you, were you conflicted, uh, uh, at least initially during the primary over who to support, having worked for Bill Clinton um, and seeing some of your friends and colleagues and people you respected working for Barack Obama? Yes, uh, but I supported Hillary Clinton initially, and then uh, as the Clinton campaign came to a close, I supported Barack Obama. It's, so it sounds like you had this plan with, obviously, with your personal life to kind of focus on that um, that process and the adoption process. But you were eventually recruited to come back to Washington um, in 2013 to to work for the OMB, to, to run the, eventually run the OMB. When you were asked to do that, you know, oftentimes people say when the president asks you to do something, you do it. Um, Was that the way you saw it or was it something that you were ready to do, like you were ready to come back to Washington, ready to get back into politics and government? So the issues of presidential personnel and hiring, I am quite, quite respectful of and sensitive to. And so in the first round... I wanted to help and support President Obama. I was so excited about his election, but knew that it wasn't the right time to serve. And my husband, we had made that decision. And so what I said was, I'll do anything I can to help in the transition, to help this new president um, get off to the right start, whatever it was, anything you wanted me to do. And so I led the transition of the FDIC. You may remember that this was a time of uh, crisis (laughs) in the financial industry. Many of my friends were working on the Treasury transition, and I did the FDIC piece. And so... What I the answer to the question of the president calls and you serve, I think that's a very true thing. But I think one needs to have done some good thinking before so that you know your parameters. So I came into the FDI, I said, I'll do anything in the transition and I don't want to continue serving so that that would you know, inform people about how they thought about it and laying out those parameters. Similarly, in the second term of the Obama administration, my family, we had just moved to Arkansas. We had only been in Arkansas a year. Because you moved there to work to run the Walmart Foundation. That's right, and their women's economic empowerment work. And so it was a very high bar for me to leave that job and for us to move as a family. And so my husband and I had discussed that there would be only a select number of things that would be um, important enough to serve and a good enough fit 
in terms of my skills and things that I would bring, that we would consider it. And one of those things was the director of OMB. You get to uh, the Obama administration like in the middle of heated budget battles with congressional Republicans. The congressional Republicans are having none of the Obama administration's budget proposals. Um, did you have to just jump into it right away? Yes. As a matter of fact, my first day, the furloughs were occurring. And furloughs, because of the way that caps had been set and spending had been, um, the sequester had been put in place, this was part of the way that people met the ability to do that. And because OMB is all people, you can't cut out other things because OMB is just an, the Office of Management and Budget is an organization that's just really all people. We don't mm. have programs. We don't, there's not a lot of travel. There's just the people. And so the day I arrive, I think was the alternate furlough day. So you furloughed a bunch of people one day and then furloughed other people the other day. So you kind of keep the thing going. So yes, it was in the middle of uh, what was a very difficult budget time. Because you you knew that the money was running out. That's right. And how much time when you arrived did you have before the money would run out? At that point, we were working on, I arrive in April, and we're working on getting a negotiated budget deal for October 1st. I mean, were you personally going to Capitol Hill and talking to congressional leaders about the budget and explaining it to them? So I arrive and the president's budget has been submitted. So now it is about the question of what will be the budget that the Congress will pass. Right. And so the objective was to get levels of funding that could relieve some of these difficult situations and negative pressure that's occurring. At this point, things that are happening, our Air Force isn't flying as many training flights. They've grounded people because they can't afford um, to do that. And so the objective is to get a high enough level of spending that then you can split it across all the departments of government and get us back to a level uh, where base functioning is occurring as it was. And so that's where I kind of get on the merry-go-round. And so then you're starting that work on how do we get ourselves out of this thing, the sequester, that is causing so much difficulty in terms of how the government functions for the American people. When, when did it become clear to you that there was going to be no deal, that, that congressional Republicans, not enough of them, would support this budget? You know, I was hopeful to the very end because when you're the director of the Office of Management and Budget, it's your memo that shuts down the mm -hmm. government. And mm -hmm. so obviously we had to put the plans in place. You have to do the calls with the departments. The departments have to put forward proposals of how they're going to function. It was a little hard to understand that we were going to shut down the government over funding for the Affordable Care Act. That was a sticking point. That was a large part of the sticking point that there were some members who just would not go forward. Some of the most conservative members of conservative, Congress, I, yes. I, I remember yes. the time, basically said, uh, we're not going to support this unless unless we defund the Affordable Care Act, what, you know, Obamacare. What they, they wanted to – they didn't want to support it with congressional funding anymore. That's correct. Obviously, you were not the only negotiator. There were tons of negotiators. There were legislative liaisons and the president was involved and there were congressional Democrats involved. But did you – did, did it get to a point where you just r realized that nothing could be done? You could not, you yourself personally could not do anything to avoid a shutdown? There came a point where, you know, there's a clear realization that this is about the votes and that there was nothing more we could do to support the Republican leadership in getting those votes. So at that point, what... I mean, I guess the only thing you can do is manage a shutdown to the best of your ability. That's right. And it's a very difficult thing because the laws that surround shutdown actually have criminal offenses. Because the point is, if you do not have an appropriation by Congress, you can't spend the taxpayer's money. There are exceptions, but defining those exceptions is a, quite a hard thing uh, to do. All the loans for small businesses... You know, the processing of those loans just stops. 
and what that means if you were getting ready to start your small business and have been banking on that loan. It's uh, all the things that people don't even consider. I mean, the FDA checking food on a regular basis, yeah. you know, that, that kind of thing, because that's not an immediate danger to health. We, we have the FDA doing that because we catch things. Um, and so it's just thing after thing every day. Uh, there are new issues and new problems coming in. I, would, I met with the president every single day during the shutdown to brief him on, you know, what were the biggest challenges, what were the concerns, and were we making progress on getting a deal? <laughs> and, and I think that lasted like like 16 days, if I, if I remember correctly. Yes, that's correct. And afterwards, you released a report basically showing the cost of it. I mean, I, I remember congressional Democrats, President Obama, th- their argument was this was just an unnecessary self-inflicted wound. But it's going to have a huge impact on the economy. And, and you released a report showing that, like, you know, just the salaries alone for furloughed employees cost the government $2 billion. It was like six and a half million days of uh, of lost work and, and tons and tons of statistics in this report. I mean, were you just personal? Like, I'm just curious personally because you don't strike me and I've never seen you kind of express outrage or anger. But I, I mean, was a part of you just really mad about about this? Because it, the argument from the administration's perspective was this was unnecessary. Yes, it was unnecessary. And mad interacts with sad. Mm. Because, like, the people who work hard and pay their taxes, I want them to get the value for that money that you know we owe that to them and the people who work hard every day and nobody wants to talk about the details everybody wants the the story of the day but i mean the aggregate problem that gets caused when you do this is just something that the american people don't deserve and those who are working hard and playing by the rules every day and coming to work in, in government don't deserve uh either and so it's something that's quite saddening uh, when it happens. I'm, I'm just curious. I mean, as you kind of moved from OMB and then you were nominated to run Health and Human Services, I think it's the third biggest uh, federal agency, right? Is, it, is that right? There's the second biggest? Maybe maybe Pentagon, USDA, and HHS? By people, by dollars, it's the largest. Wow. Right. So with the budget, it's a budget of over a trillion dollars. Because of Medicare and, and Medicaid. And Medicaid. Right. That's right. So you're running the, the biggest department. Um, and during your tenure, I mean, you are – you're dealing with congressional Republicans who want to repeal or severely cripple the Affordable Care Act. You've got uh, the Zika virus, the Ebola epidemic – uh, unaccompanied minors coming to the to the border through Central America. Um, how did you think about managing all of these different crises? I mean, that that is a <laughs> that's a lot to deal with. There were a number of things, and and it increased the challenge. I uh, like three of the first things came through the door in the first three weeks. I turned to um, Bill Core, who was my deputy at that time, and Bill. I said, Bill, like. We have, you know, a Supreme Court decision that came against us. We have, you know, the children coming across the border. We have just opened up the uh, emergency response center in the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention on Ebola. Um, you know, Bill, what, what's, can you help me understand? Because he had been there. And he said, well, Sylvia, sometimes people say that problems come in threes. I'm afraid with you they come in 33s. <laughs> um, and that was kind of what I, as you're indicating, I walked into. And so it became important to very quickly get to the core objectives in each of the crises, like get to clear measures of like what were the, what do we all agree would be the measures of success so that we can all like, here's what we're working against and then we can align and do that. And then the other thing that's extremely important when you have that many balls in the air is the strength of the teams uh, that you have in place. And on a daily basis, really focusing what are the big rocks that you need to move when you have mm-hmm. that many crises going. 
And the other thing is, you know, the rest of the department can't be ignored either. So how do you put in place tools that support the other members of your team as they're trying to do the day-to-day work that must continue even while you're in crisis? Let's just just break down these different crises for a moment. I mean, Ebola, for example, I remember there were projections from serious NGOs. This is going to be an enormous epidemic, like that, that perhaps hundreds of thousands of people will die and, and, and maybe even spread to the U.S. at some point. Um, I mean, you must have seen those projections early on. I mean, how worried were you about about Ebola? Very worried. Um, Ebola was a very difficult challenge because it was something we had never seen Ebola spread at this scale. We'd never seen it in concentrated population areas uh, spreading. We'd never seen it at the numbers that you had that were doing everything from undermining the healthcare systems to the economies of the countries in which they were in. And furthermore, we had never seen Ebola on our shores. While it was one of the largest and most difficult crises that I've had you know, worked on in government, it's also the one where I would reflect that the government worked together the mm. best I have ever seen it. So when it came to the Affordable Care Act, you were actually named, right? There was a, a Supreme Court case with your name on it um, where the Supreme Court once again essentially upheld the basic provisions of the Affordable Care Act. Um, I mean, did you genuinely believe at that time that you could still forge bipartisan solutions and compromises over policy like health care, like, you know, did you still feel like that was a possibility? Yes. But on that, I will start with um, a place where I was a little let down. And I was let down by two lawyers. Um, when I took the job at HHS, I did not understand that all Supreme Court cases would switch to my name. <laughs> Hobby Lobby versus Burwell, King versus Burwell, that all these cases would switch to my name. And I was let down by two lawyers. One of them, my husband, who's an attorney who didn't warn me about this, and the other one, the President of the United States, who's also an attorney, in terms of all the cases that would um, then come. And you're right, some of those cases were supported by other members in Congress. But I did believe, and I do believe, that you can get things done. And one of the things I did was I had these breakfasts, and they were called, I called them my common ground breakfasts. Mm -hmm. And we would invite all of the authorizers and appropriators of all the committees of HHS, House and Senate, ranking and minority to breakfast. At, at the Department of, of Health and Human Services? Yes. You yes, do this once yes. a month or once a week? or I did it about, it was almost every two months. Right. The only rule of the breakfast was the only to- the only topics we would discuss in the breakfast were the topics that we thought we could get to common ground. We discussed delivery system reform, opioids for which there was legislation, issues like global health security, Zika and um, Ebola and issues like that, where we could work to get things done. And the idea was breakfast was about creating those relationships and having conversation about where do we see the places where we thought something could happen hmm. and how could we work to get that done. And did it, did you think they worked? Y- yes. I mean, particularly with congressional Republicans? Oh, yes. I think that they were, I, I think there are many things that contributed, but I do think they built the muscles for there are areas where we can get along and move things and move the ball forward and contribute to it. I think it's 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 fair to say that there are many congressional Republicans and even members, mem- many members of the, this administration, the current administration, who don't want to see government work, who don't actually agree with the notion that their job is to make government function, but that their job is to cripple government, hobble government to allow them whatever the marketplace or – I mean, do you, do you think it's safe, it's fair to say that it is as bad as, as it's ever been? As you've ever seen it? It's certainly, I think, as bad as I've ever seen it. But I don't I don't find that an excuse for not putting in the effort and the energy to try to get us back to a place that can work and to get things done. That's not to say it's not hard. That's not to say it's not frustrating. But I believe it's what 
you come to do if you take these jobs. Um, Alice Rivlin, who is one of your predecessors at OMB. Um, and mentors. And mentors. Um, she she died recently. And after her death, I, I remember reading an article that essentially said her you know, her death kind of marks the also the death of the technocracy, the people who really were focused on solutions-oriented government who, you know, may, may have been Democrats or Republicans but didn't – weren't really that partisan, that, that they were focused on solutions. And I think I think you would probably put yourself in that category of, of a more of a technocrat than a kind of a partisan, you know, uh, warrior, right? And I – and I, I have to say, Sylvia, I think I agree with that. I think we're at a, t- a moment now where technocrats, people who are solutions-oriented, they're not being listened to. W- would you agree with that? I think that the problem you're articulating may go beyond the issues of government, that this has to do with how people think about knowledge and substance Mm. and facts and viewing the question at that level then asking what's the role of government if the problem is broader than just the question of how government works what is the role of government and i would you know posit that the role is for our leaders to lead and the role is that you know the more of us that are willing to say call it when you see it in terms of the substantive issues, like, no, let's make sure we get the facts. Let's, before we go off on tangents of, you know, words that just are supposed to represent different things to different people. I think it's a broader issue, and I think government has a role. And I think it is hard, and I think it is the worst that I've seen. So I'm not being Pollyanna about the problem. I'm just being what you probably get a sense of. I'm, certain ways, I'm just, like, realistic, you know, as my mother used to say, I don't make the rules. What is um, <laughs> yeah, but what is the way out? I mean, every day brings a new crisis or a new outrage or things that that like you you talk about how you had these bipartisan breakfasts and when when Congress asked for information from your departments, you provided it to them. Like that is not happening now. It's it's a complete break with you know the way government has worked. How do we reverse it? How do we get out of it? How do we actually get back to a place where uh, government kind of functioned or, 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 you know, people talked across the aisle? I think that there are sort of two different things. There are the basic norms of how things work, and then there's working together on problems. And I think we have to work on both of those. And a part of that is getting to the place where leadership thinks it's valuable. Uh, to do that, that that is the best way forward. And I think that's an important step. Um, With regard to the reestablishment of norms, I actually think that's the harder part. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because once this has happened, the temptation is just to keep down the path. Right. Because someone didn't have to obey the rules, so why should I? Right. And so... We are going to have to find leadership with great integrity that's willing to say, I understand it and I understand it's hard and I understand it makes it harder, but we've got to move forward in the reestablishment of the norms. And those norms, as I said, I don't think it's just here in Washington, D.C. I think it's across the board. I'm curious, when you go to West Virginia and you have conversations with folks, um, if you have a, a conversation with somebody who says, you know, Sylvia, all this talk about, you know, global warming is nonsense or, you know, all this, the, the, you know, the, the, the lies of the fake media about this president and the elites in Washington who are feeding us lies and so on and so forth. Um, um, so how do you, what do you say? How do you, how do you communicate um, your views and your ideas back home when you encounter people who you know, believe those are elite elitist views. So interestingly, often it is the integrity of the source that is the thing at question in, in terms of when I say, well, you know, actually I have been there or I saw this or, you know, actual real experiences. It's not making the assumption that people aren't logical or uh 
aren't thinking things through. That's not necessarily at all what's happening. But it is this question of how they, what they consider fact and substance and helping them to get to that. You are now leading a university. You're the president of American University in Washington. And um, there's also a enormous changes happening on university campuses about speech, about what, um, you know, the limits of speech, about conduct, um, identity, and there are all kinds of issues that students are working through about race, gender, politics. Does any of it concern you or...? or I think that it is uh, it is concerning and it is different. What's happening around the country is happens in more acute in, in these communities that are universities. Mm. But I also think we also have opportunities to try and contribute to creating the thinkers and leaders of tomorrow that can be a part of the solution space. And the way we work on this issue is working through what we call inclusive excellence. And it's the idea that in our campus community, that if we do not have inclusion, and that's inclusion broadly defined, that is inclusion of race, of sexual orientation, of political point of view, uh, which is one of the criticisms that many have of universities, that, you know, can you have differing political, that this idea of inclusion is what will make us excellent. And so how do we get to that? where that inclusion can occur and can occur in respectful ways and ways that don't harm. Harm is being done at times and places. I think you probably know on our campus Mm -hmm. uh, we have had some of those issues and we have had hate crimes that have been investigated by uh, the federal authorities. And so there's a whole spectrum. And what happens in the conversation is depending on which side you sit, When you hear this, you automatically go to your place of what you think. And this is, again, where the substance is really important. What are the facts about, you know, that's one thing that social media doesn't always help us. It helps us move information quickly. But does it help us sometimes move the nuance and the details and the facts of information that are actually important to where people, if you had those facts, would sit or stand or think are the cases? Yeah, I mean— even with all of your experience, right, running huge foundations, running the biggest government agency, running the, the federal budget, that there, there's still been a steep learning curve running a university, right? Because you are dealing with an entirely new population of, of human beings who have legitimate concerns, right? And, and young people are more diverse. Um, they have legitimate reasons to worry about hate speech, right? Um, I have to imagine all these issues have been new for you and have required you to actually become educated as well. Uh, Yes, the learning curve has been uh, steep. Uh, It is great. It is great to learn. Being at a university, you're very close to those that you serve in a way that you hear from them much more directly. Um, It's obviously some days challenging. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but um, I do welcome the voice of our students as, as well as our staff and our faculty in advancing the thinking and getting these issues right because it's not easy. That's one of the things that I think is very important is that we as a community recognize that things are hard and we as a community work together um, when they are hard. From a very early age, you showed leadership um instincts, right? You were the president of your high school class and and you were involved in, in political campaigns even as a kid. Um, do you think that you had that in you, that, that leadership was a part of you and your DNA? Or do you think you had to learn how to become a leader? I think I did a lot of learning uh, along the way. I think you are, you are the personality that you are. <laughs> But I just think a lot of what is around you contributes. Your personality is your personality. But there's a lot that's contributed as you kind of grow and learn. So for you, a little mixture of both? I think, yes, a mixture of both with a very heavy dose of so many people contributed to what I am able to do today. So the heavier dose on the learn. That's Sylvia Matthews Burwell. 
She's currently serving as American University's 15th president and the first woman to undertake that role. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary Media and Built for Productions. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.